So we're going to be in the book of Malachi tonight. Malachi. Now, I know some of you you've, who've been here, you're going, maybe we're supposed to be in Zechariah. Well, um, Keith will teach that next week. He was supposed to teach tonight, and he, well, he's just not here. So, anyways, we are going to Malachi. Well, he, yes, he's not feeling well. Let's put it that way. But, um, so we're going to go ahead and go to Malachi, and then he'll go back and finish up in Zechariah next week. And Melissa decided to sit on the front row because I said nobody sits there. Yes, but um, you'll find out. But let me go ahead and pray, and then we will uh, we'll jump in. God, thank you for the day that you've given us and uh, the privilege we have of coming together as your people. Thank you for um, allowing us to, to have your word and that we can uh, study it and learn more about who you are and what you would have us do. And I pray that you would just challenge us uh, from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Malachi it marks the close of the Old Testament. And so I know we've been in this series a long time, and, you know, typically when you, if you're going in an order, next week would be New Testament, but uh, it's going to be going backward next week. But uh, Malachi marks the close of the Old Testament prophecy. Welcome. Front row. Two of them, man. Um, but Old Testament prophecy, it, it marks the close of the Old Testament prophecy, and it's followed by 400 years of silence. And so... He, uh, Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, and then from there on, there's not, there is 400 years uh, where no word from God comes to a prophet. And so um, we have this silence, uh, but it would be broken by John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, when he appears on the scene, this is when the 400 years of silence is broken. Malachi prophesies about the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, both of them, Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then in Malachi 4, 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so we see John the Baptist proclaim Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, fulfilling these prophecies. We see these in the, in the New Testament, of course. Uh, John 1, 29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is coming and he points him out saying, this is the Lamb of God who has come into the world. So uh, he, this is him breaking the silence uh, of this 400 years. Matthew 17, verses 11 through 13, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first. This is at the transfiguration. Let me just point that out first. But it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him. I did not know him, but did to him whatever they, they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to, them, spoke to them of John the Baptist. And so we see that Malachi prophesies of John the Baptist, that he would come, not by name, and also the Messiah would come, which we understand that Jesus also did come. And so Jesus confirmed that the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5, and verse 6 would be fulfilled in John the Baptist. And so when John the Baptist came, in the power and, and spirit of Elijah, was not, he was not Elijah like the person, but he came, he was, um, he, he, that Elijah coming was uh, the fulfillment in John the Baptist. Now the prophet Elijah is also probably one of the two witnesses. If you read in Revelation chapter 11, you can go back and read that at some point. There's two witnesses that will come. And he is probably one of those two 
uh, witnesses who will come and prophesy and work miracles during the tribulation before the second coming of Christ. And so Malachi is talking about, in this instance, he's talking about John the Baptist, the coming of him, and also the coming of Christ. But also he is going to, he is also referring later on to this future event of the second coming of Christ. So Jesus confirms uh, these things, that these prophecies were speaking of him. Now Malachi's prophecy was fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus at his first coming, and it will be fulfilled at a later, later date. We don't know what that date is, but at a later time, uh, this will be fulfilled uh, in, at, the, when, at the second coming of Christ. Malachi chapter 3, if you're in Malachi, we can read that. So Jesus came the first time, of course he's coming again, and these verses are referring to when he comes again in power, when he comes to judge the, judge the nations, judge sin, uh, and, and to set up his kingdom. And this is referring to that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Uh, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so this is speaking of a future time that has not happened yet when Christ is going to come again uh, and he is going to deal with sin once and for all. And so this is speaking of that time. So Malachi, like a lot of these prophets, they're speaking of something kind of in the near future, which in this case is 400 years, but that's pretty near uh, in the whole scheme of things. So more in the near future, but he's also speaking of something further away in the future, which is the second coming of Christ, as many of these prophets um, do. And so we see these things here. Uh, John the Baptist, he broke the long period of silence, but we also need to know and understand that just because there is this period of silence from God does not mean that God was not at work. God was at, he was at work, again, preparing the way, preparing the time that Christ would come. So God's always at work. Just because there was no prophet during that time does not mean that God was sitting around doing nothing. God's always at work. Now, Malachi was written around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. If you are familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, this is when the captives from Babylon were released to go home, and they rebuilt the temple, and they also rebuilt the walls under Nehemiah. This is about the same time, a time frame that this was written. So the released captives uh, returned home, rebuilt the temple and the walls, but it's very clear that they, they didn't learn much. They didn't learn a lot. It's like, okay, we were captive because of the sin uh, in our lives, well, they go back and go right back to it. So they, didn't, they did not learn their lessons. And we're like that sometimes too, are we not? We're kind of hard-headed and continue to make the same mistakes and do the same things over and over and over again and wonder uh, why, we're, why we're struggling. We're hard-headed. We're hard-hearted as these people were. But they didn't learn very much. They soon relapsed back into their old ways, uh, the exact ways that God judged them for, for covetous, covetousness, idolatry, uh, mixed marriages uh, with pagans, 
uh, abuse of the poor and, of course, just hard hearts in general. So Malachi directs his message of judgment to a people who are plagued with a corrupted priest. And this is really uh, who God goes after first, is the spiritual leadership, these priests. Um, And they were leading the people into wicked and... um, wicked into a sin uh, in their lives. And so what you're going to see in Malachi is God uses the question and answer method. So you ask a question, and, he's in a, and you'll see here in a minute, and they say, well, when did we do that? So kind of like if you, if you were to say, when did you do, do something? And you're like, I don't remember that. When, when did we do that? And you'll see, you'll see it in just a minute. But keep that in mind as we're talking about these. He uses this question and answer uh, method. And he probes deeply into the problems of hypocrisy, infidelity, uh, mixed marriages, divorce, false worship, and arrogance. Um, so this nation, of, nation, God's chosen people, um, got to the point to where God's word had no impact on them whatsoever. So they may have been going through some of the practices. They may have been going through some of the motions. Um, but they were living in, in deep, deep sin. And they were not honoring God. So that's the very quick kind of background of the book. And so what I want to take the rest of the night on, it's only four chapters, we're not going to read the whole four chapters. That would, that would put you all to sleep. Um, but what I want to do now is walk through this short book and see what God is saying to them and to us, because we're no different than they are. And by the way, a lot of the things it talks about in here, a lot of the things that they were, uh, these people were sinning, that what their, the actions they were, they were doing, uh, apply to us today and so a lot of people say the old testament doesn't apply and it's not relevant it absolutely is relevant and it absolutely does apply it's god's word you'll see in here in malachi god says i don't change we'll read that here in just a little bit but in it's actually I actually have it open right here but um, malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says for i am the lord i do not change and so if god gave us his word back then it doesn't change it still holds for us today and so we can learn from these people um, in, the, in this situation. So remember this question and answer format as we go through this. It's almost like a court case in which God makes irrefutable and convicting arguments against the people of which they really have no answer. There is no, there is no answer to the charges or these grievances brought against them. In Malachi, there's 55 verses. 47 of them are God talking. So there's no... There's no uh, filling in the, the gaps of the prophet. There's no um, you know, writing about it, the situations going on. It's actually God directly talking uh, to the people. And 47 of 55 verses are spoken of God, which is the highest proportion of all prophets. So chapter 1, and we're just going to go through these. I'll start in verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Here you go. You see it right away? What, say, of course you don't love us. Look what's happened to us. We've been in captivity. Uh, our lives are not what we thought they were. Show, tell us how you've loved us. But he says, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, and laid waste uh, his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. It's so what he's saying is, of course, I, I, I chose you. I made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, your descendants, that I was going to make a great nation out of you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. I brought you out by my power. I fed you in the wilderness, even though 
Uh, even when they were living in sin, God took care of his people. Even when they were taken to captivity, there's always a remnant. That he was going to save a remnant because of his promises that he made uh, to, his, uh, to, their, to ja- Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, of course, I've loved you. But then we get to the, kind of this first grievance uh, that God has. And we'll read that in verse 6, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. So a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I then am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in which way we defile you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible, and you offer, offer the blind as a sacrifice. Is, this, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it, uh, offer it then to your governor. Would he, not, would he be pleased with you? Would he, be, would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? So we see this first grievance. God begins to question the priest, saying, Where is my honor? Where is my reverence? We live in a society today where God is not honored and God is not revered. He's speaking directly to the priest here. But do you honor God? Do you revere God? Do you have a fear uh, for him? him? When I say fear, I mean this reverence, this awe of who he is. He says, this is how you've done that. Of course, they say, how do we do that? How do we despise you? Um, And he goes on and tells them. says, priests despise his name by offering defiled food on the altar. They offered defective sacrifices. What 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 did God command when it came to bringing, like, something from your flock? To bring your best. It had to be unblemished. I mean, there were, some, there were requirements. The thing was, you didn't bring the old one that's about to die. You didn't bring the one that was missing a leg or, or had something defective wrong with it. You brought your best. This is what was required. Well, what they were doing was bringing defective sacrifices, those that were not the perfect sacrifice that they, as they were commanded. It was not the best in their flock. It says, you've despised me in doing this. He says, your sacrifices are not even worthy uh, to a human authority. He says, would a governor accept this? Would your governor? Saying, this is not even worthy of a, of a human authority, um, much less me, God. God tells them he has no pleasure in them, verse 10. He says, who, who is there even among you would shut the door so that you would not kindle my, the fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. He says, I'm not pleased with you. God was not pleased with what they were doing. He was not pleased with these defective offerings and defiling of the altar um, and doing what they were commanded to do. God was not pleased with his offerings. He says, I will not accept them. We see that God is not pleased with Judah, but his heart is for the nations, is declared. He says, you people profane my name. He says, but the Gentiles will praise me. And we see this in verse 11 and 12. It says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles in every place. Incense shall be offered to, offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. And that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, uh, is contemptible. And so what he's saying here is, the Gentiles, all the, na- all the nations are going to praise me. He says, but my chosen people, my special people, 
He says, you profane my name. I have, my special, I have put a special mark on you as my people, and you profane my name. And then God, he rebukes them, reminding them who he is in verse 14. It says, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And, here, and this, is, this is what he says. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. He says, you need to be reminded of who I am. Where is my honor? He says, where is my, uh, where is my honor? Where is my reverence? He says, you need to be reminded who I am. He says, I am creator God, God Almighty, and you need to honor me, and you need to revere me. And because of that, this is why they got the grievance that was given toward them. He reminds them of who he is. So what did God want? Well, first, he commands to be honored and to be feared. So are you honoring God, and are you giving him reverence? He says, where's my honor? Where's my reverence? So are you doing that? God wanted their best. They were giving the defiled, the the sick, the lame uh, sacrifices. What, what, What did God want? He wanted the best, the best that they had, and that we are to offer God our best. And so God wanted their best. He wants our best in everything. Uh, God commanded a right heart attitude toward him. Of course, they didn't have that. And he wanted them to recognize who it is that they are dishonoring. This is not just a governor. This is not your mom. This is not your dad. Says This is God Almighty. And when you come before him, you are to come with honor. You are to come with reverence before him. And he is reminding them of this. And then moving on to chapter 2, it, start, it kind of con- continues here, and God commands them that they repent. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I, will have, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse uh, on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feast, and the one, and one will take take a, take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this uh, sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue. Says the Lord of Hosts. It says, if you will give glory to me, you can be forgiven. But he says, you need to repent. You have not revered me. You have not honored me. You need to repent. And then in verse 5 of chapter 2, we see this second grievance that God has toward the, toward the, uh, the nation of Judah. In verse five, verses 5 through 9, it is God's covenant with Levi. The Levites were the, the priests. They were the ones who took, you know, took care of the temple. Their job was uh, the sacrificing, the priests. They all came from uh, the Levites. That was their job. And so in verses 5 through 9, we see how they broke God's covenant with Levi. So verse 5, it says, My covenant was with him, a one of life and peace, and I gave them to him, that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned, away, turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. 
You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. So this covenant that God made with the Levites, uh, they were to fear God, just kind of a list here, fear God. They were to be reverent before his name. He says they did this at first. They were doing this at one point. Uh, They were to speak the law of truth. They were supposed to know the law and they were to speak it. Uh, They were to be uh, people who were just and acted justly. They were to walk with God in peace and equity. They were to turn, it says, turn many from iniquity. And also that they were to be wise advisors to the people. The priests were to be the spiritual leaders of the people. So as the priests would go, as they lived their lives, as they, did, as they were the example, people could follow them. They could, take, they could have advice from them. They could, uh, they, could ask, they could ask a question about the law, and they would know it and speak truth um, to them. But the priests of Malachi's day departed from this way, causing, causing the people uh, to stumble and became corrupt. And because of this... This is, that, this is why God uh, talks about this second grievance, so to speak, is that they had, uh, they had broken this covenant that God had made with them. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people, but in, in effect, they were leading people astray. They were leading people into sin, and because of that, God was not pleased. If you move, move forward to verses 10 through 17 in chapter 2, We see the third grievance, and it deals with with marriage. God turns his attention to marriage. He calls it the Lord's holy institution. He says it is a holy institution, and he says the way you're acting, he calls it treachery against the wives of your youth. To say something is treacherous is really bad. He says this is how you're treating the wives um, of your youth. So verse 10, we'll pick up. It says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob. The man who does this, uh, being awake and aware. Yet Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar with the Lord, the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the, your offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them, but he did not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. And let none of you, let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For if, for if covers one's, for if covers uh, one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not steal, deal treacherously. Your words have wearied the Lord. Your uh, we, your words, sorry, this is worded differently than we normally speak. <laughs> uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil 
is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So this third grievance is when God is speaking of marriage. God's holy institution means it is holy, it is a good thing when we do it God's way. And it is something that the Lord himself instituted. It's something that he created. So they profaned the holy institution of marriage by divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. So they were married, they were divorcing these women, and they were going and marrying foreigners or other uh, foreigners would be uh, talking about pagans, the neighbor, neighboring countries around them that were, um, that were pagans. And so they were divorcing their wives, they were marrying these pagan women, and uh, this was dishonoring to God. See, biblical marriage is a holy institution of God. And just a little list here of, of kind of what, a, what biblical marriage is speaking of. First of all, it's a union between one man and one woman for life. That's the easiest definition to remember. Is that it's one man, one woman uh, for a lifetime. This is what, so this is what biblical marriage is. This union uh, in the Garden of Eden, it was blessed by God, and it is blessed even now. Uh, it is a covenant that should never be broken. Uh, when you stood and you made your wedding vows on that day, you made a covenant before God and also before witnesses that you're going to love, you're going to honor, you're, that you are, you're going to become one and that, that we are going to, and this is for life, and we're going to honor this covenant that we made before God and before witnesses. This one flesh that, uh, that's spoken of in marriage it does include the sexual union, but goes even beyond that. It's blending two individuals into a single entity, and it's meant to be a blessing. And so it includes all of those things, but it's becoming one is what it's speaking of. Scripture is clear that God's original command regarding marriage was for one man to be joined to one woman, that they are to leave their father and their mother. Um, a lot of times people leave their father and mother, but they don't cut the emotional attachments. It means that we leave father and mother, and they, the man and his wife are joined together, and they become one flesh, and the, at that point, a family is started. So a new family, where, where the husband's the head, uh, the wife, children, and so on and so forth. Again, that's another, that's another message for another day. Uh, we're just going very quickly through um, this. But the New Testament is consistent as well for the husband... Uh, is for the husband and the wife to be exclusively faithful to one another within this marriage bond. And divorce was not part of God's plan. Now, we live in a society where it's everywhere. I'm tired of him. Or I'm tired of her. Let's just get divorced. I don't love him anymore, or I don't love her anymore. Well, guess what? God commands you to love her, so do it. That's the bottom line. And what is love? Love is not these feelings that you get. Love is something that is acted on. And so for the men, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. This is what we're called to do. Divorce was not part of God's plan. Also, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, Christ and his relationship to the church. It says that husbands, in Ephesians, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit to their husbands. Well, guess what? The husband is a picture of Christ. Christ is the head of the church, correct? Right? With me so far? Christ is the head of the church. The church comes under the leadership of Christ, and it is a picture of Christ and the church. And so this is what marriage is to be. This is what God intended it to be. And it shows a lost world 
Christ and his love and, and his relationship with his church. This is what God meant it to be. And when lived according to God's design, marriage blesses and it builds up its partners as well as families, society, and the church as a whole. You want a stronger church? Be stronger marriages. Uh, two people who are committed to God and are committed to one another. And so this is what God intended. Uh, families in, in, in our society, uh, families, strong, strong families are the backbone of our society, backbone of our culture. Our culture is going, it's going, <laughs> all, all over the place, going all different directions. If we, and I talked to our class on Sunday, we were talking about some of these things and saying, if you want to see change, it's going to start at home. If we want to see change, it doesn't mean we're going to be out here picketing. What it means is that I'm going to start doing what God's called me to do at home. And if Christians around this, and Christians in our nation would begin to begin to do these things at home, we would see change. And so we can't control what other people do. But as Joshua says, you can control what you're going to do. And saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so uh, this is what we have to do. This is what God, this is what he intended in marriage. He intended it to be a blessing. And we see in verse 16, it says, God hates divorce. And he says, by divorcing, divorcing your wives, he's, he says, you're dealing with your, the wives of your youth, what he called them, treacherously. He says, don't do that. I have a problem with that. And so he has this grievance against the priest uh, in that sense. Actually, I was one more verse wondering. Go to First Peter. Hold your verse there, or your place there. Go to First Peter. I went off on a tangent and just totally skipped this. But what God had told them in Malachi was, because they had profaned their marriage, God would not accept their offering. And in First Peter chapter three, verse verses one through seven. It says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in the form of uh, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of the life that your prayers may not be hindered. See what God told the, these priests he says that I will not accept your offering because you have profaned my holy institution of marriage. And so when, we're, when we are not right with our spouse, God is not pleased. We are not right, God is not pleased. And, so, and it's speaking clearly to men here saying your prayers will be hindered. If you're not dwelling with your wife with understanding, uh, it's, it's what we are called to do, and so they were not right. They were dealing treacherously with their wives, with the wives of their youth, and God was not pleased. They had broken their vows by divorcing their wives and marrying these pagan women, and they led the people to follow suit. 
So it started with the priest, the spiritual leaders of, of, the, of the nation, and the people followed along with them. So chapter 3. Chapter 3. So just as Christ came the first time, he's going to come again to judge sin and purify his people. We see this in verses 1 through 5. It says, Behold, I sent my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, Lord who, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of, my, of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them with gold and silver that they may offer the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near for, for judgment. I will be swift in witness uh, against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So God is, Christ is coming again. And he's going to come and he's going to deal, deal with and judge sin. And he's going to purify his people. So Christ is coming again. And Malachi is speaking, speaking clearly of this. And then I love verse 6 when it just says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. We live in a world that's changing all the time. Every day is different. We don't know what another day is going to bring. But one thing we do know is that God's word does not change, and God doesn't change, and so we can trust and be anchored in that fact that God doesn't change. In verses 8 through 12, we see this fourth grievance that God brings against them. He's going to be speaking about giving here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will will, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Now you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open, the, open you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that you will not have room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, that you will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall this vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you, call you blessed, for you will be delightful. You'll be in a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So this fourth grievance, God says, you've been robbing me. They say, how have we robbed you? He says, in your tithes and offerings, you've not been giving. God wanted them to tithe. Why? Does, is God short on money? Did God need their money? See, God didn't need their money. He doesn't need our money. What it is, it's an act of of obedience. It's an act of trust, and it builds us. Um, Tithing, I like what David Jeremiah, he has an acronym for trusting. He says, tithing is trusting, and he says, uh, the first, starting just in order here, trusting, says, treat God as your top priority. When we give, we are making that a priority in our life, Uh, and it's something that, that we make a point to do this, that I'm going to give on a regular basis uh, making God, making that a top priority. The R, return to God what is properly his. See, this is a recognition that I don't own anything. We all, a lot of times I can say, that's my house, that's my car, that's my this, that's my that. Well, where did that all come from? God. 
I mean, if you have the money to be able to do that, guess what? God gave you the job. God gave you the money to be able to do those things. We recognize that everything we have comes from God. And so we return to God what is properly his. It's not ours. We are entrusted with it. Uh, the you understand God's promise to provide. Is that sometimes, as in a lot of us in here, you can identify with this. Uh, has there been a time in your life where giving was a hard thing to do? Like this month is tight. This season of life is tight, but I give anyways. Why? Because God's commanded me to do that, and I'm trusting in his provision. That doesn't mean I'm going to be filthy rich, but we trust that God's going to provide. He, give, he gave me what I have, so I'm going to give this the fir- first to him so that, and trust that he's going to provide. Uh, the S is sharing God's kingdom plans. Is that when you give to the church, let's just say, when you give your tithes and offerings to the church, to the church uh, that money is used for ministry. Now, of course, we have to pay the lights and you know, pay the salaries, those kind of things. But your money goes all around the world. It goes here locally. So we can't have this stuff without people who give. Uh, we can't do missions around the world unless people give. And so when you give, you are, you are entering in and you're sharing in God's kingdom plan. That we are going to give this money and, and pray that God would multiply that. Um, and use it to breach people with the gospel of Christ. The T is testing God's power in your life. Um, is that basically say, God, I'm going to make you a top priority. I'm going to give, and I'm going to see, and what you'll find is that God does uh, provide. The I, investing in the only permanent, invest only in permanent commodities. Permanent, what does that mean? Eternal. As we invest in, in things that are eternal, uh, that, that new car, the new house, not bad to have these things. By the way, um, we all have these things that, hey, I, like, I wouldn't mind having that. Um, but those things are going to get old. They're going to fade. They're going to break down. They're going to wear out. Um, and by the way, when we die, we can't take them with us. So we need to invest in permanent or eternal commodities. And then uh, we, the N is network with eternal possibilities. And then the G, grow in personal godliness, is that when we give, it grows us to be more godly. God does, again, God does not need our money, but it grows us in obedience. It grows us in faith. Uh, when we put God first, we trust, we, and we trust him, and we thank him for his provision, and we, are, and we participate in his work. I kind of talked about that with, with church and uh, local and global missions, things that we're a part of. When we do these things, we are blessed by God. Now, blessed by God does not mean you're going to be filthy rich. You might be. I don't know. But it's not a guarantee that you will. But we are blessed by God when we do that, when we trust him. Proverbs 3.9 it says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. First fruits, your best. The first and your best. It says, we honor the Lord with our possessions. They were not doing this. It says, you are robbing me. Uh, hold your place there and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, 
We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of, of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift in the fellowship of ministering to the saints. Talking about they're taking up an offering for the struggling saints in, in Jerusalem who are going through famine. And they were going around collecting money to, to uh, bring them as aid. And so they were begging to be able to help with this, even though they were really poor. It says, and not only had we, not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus as he had begun, uh, so he would also complete this grace in, in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. What is abound in this grace? The grace of giving. What do these people do first? Is they were poor, but they really wanted to help. And so they gave out of their poverty. Um, and they urged them to take it. But it says, first of all, the first thing they did to be able to do this is they first gave themselves to the Lord. That when you fully and truly give yourself to the Lord, you, you, will, want, you will want to give. When we understand what we've been given. You will want to give. And this, these people... Uh, this was their situation. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse five. I know my Bible has verse five. I just can't find it. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I'd say that was missing. No, but uh, verse five. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go uh, to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had late, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. See that God loves it when we give because we want to. Out of the, out of the generosity that he has placed in our hearts, God loves a cheerful giver. We see this example of the Macedonians, dirt poor, struggling to get by. They said, we want to have a part. Because they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then we read here that God loves a cheerful giver. So we are givers. We're to be givers. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So why are we to be givers? Because God is a giver. What did he give? He gave his son. The best he had. The perfect sacrifice. He gave us this indescribable gift. And when we've, when we've trusted Christ, we've received him, and we, we experience this indescribable gift, now we want to be like him, and we give uh, because of what he's done for us. We are to be givers. So he had this grievance against them saying, you've been robbing me. Says, I want your best. You need to be givers. And then we see this fifth grievance in verses 13 through 15. It says, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, What have we spoken against you? You have said, It is, uh, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it if we have kept his, or this, his ordinance and we have walked, walked as mourners? Uh, before the Lord of hosts. So now we call 
of the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. They complained about serving God. This is this final grievance he speaks about. They complained about serving God saying that it is useless. What's the point? Have you ever felt that way? What's the point? And they complained about serving God. But why were they serving the Lord? What was their purpose in doing so? Well, it was for selfish gain. They're like, I'm not getting what I want out of this. So they were trying to serve the Lord to appease him and to, to earn something, uh, to appease God, or maybe to, or maybe this, maybe I'll get some money or a new house or what. Oh, I don't know what it is, but it was all about themselves. So I'm going to serve God. He's like going to be the genie in the bottle. I'm just going to say, this is my wish, and you need to fulfill it. And so they were discouraged. They were disappointed, and they said, what's the point? It's useless. They were serving the Lord for selfish gains. So this grievance that, about them complaining that God lays out against them is, your motives are wrong. Your heart attitude is wrong. And boy, those are deep waters when you really start to try to examine yourself. What are my motives? What is the, what is the attitude of my heart? Uh, this is, and if we're not careful and we're doing it all for ourselves and life's not turning out how we thought it might or how it should, then we say, what's the point? And they said it's useless to serve God. We understand from Scripture it's not useless, that our work for the Lord is not in vain. But we have to check our motives and check our heart attitude. So to wrap up this book in Malachi, in chapter 4, actually, I'm sorry, chapter 3, what we see is a call to remember God, to remember his word and what he had done for the people. In chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, it says, And those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day I will make them my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spares his own son who serves him. Uh, then you shall again discern between righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. We see this call to remember. Remember what God has done. To fear the Lord and to meditate on his name are ways of reverencing his true majesty and acknowledging who he is and that he is who he claims to be. That we meditate is not this weird mystic thing. It is thinking deeply about God's word. It's that we read it and we think, we think about it. We pray about it and, and we try to really truly understand and learn about who God is and what he wants, what he desires of us. We see that uh, God honors those who honor him. He remembers these faithful ones as his special uh, possession and treasure, those who fear him. It says those, in verse 16, those who feared the Lord, it says the Lord heard them. And so God, he commands us to fear him, to come before him with reverence, come before him in awe. And so questions here is are you honoring God in these five areas that we talked about that are very prevalent in our culture today? They're very prevalent in the church in general. The first one is, do you, are you honoring and reverencing God? Are you offering him your best? Are you giving him your whole heart? Or are you just kind of half-heartedly trying to serve him? Are you kind of just coming to church and 
or read your Bible or maybe even, maybe even give a little or something like that. But it's, it's only to appease, try, try to appease God or check off a box to make yourself feel better. Or are you truly honoring and coming before him in reverence? Second thing, do you fear and walk with God? Or do, and do you know his word? Are you willing and are you being a godly example? This is what the priests were supposed to be. They, they violated this covenant of the covenant that God made with the Levites, um, saying they are, to be, they are to fear God, they are to walk with him, they are to know his word and be that example. Are you willing to be that example uh, for people that could? If somebody was going to follow your lifestyle, let's put it that way, what would they do? If they were to do what you do, what would that look like? The third thing, do you recognize that your marriage is a holy institution of God? Are you honoring God in your marriage? Because if we're not honoring God in our marriage, God is not pleased and our prayers will be hindered and he will not bless our lives. He takes it very seriously. It's one of the first things that he created in the Garden of Eden was marriage and it's very special to him and he loves it and he blesses it. Are you honoring God in your marriage? Uh, The fourth thing, are you a giver? What's your motive in giving? Again, we got to check our motives as well. Are you a giver? Are you, uh, do you liberally give, even on a month where it may be difficult, even during a time period in your life where it might be hard? Are you willing to give? Uh, we are to be givers. And finally, are you serving God with the right attitude? And what are your motives for serving God? Are you serving him with the right attitude? Or is it all about yourself? Is it about teaching people about Christ? Is it about sharing the gospel and seeing people grow? And about honoring the Lord and, and making much of him? Or is it, are you looking for people saying, you did a great job? What's your motives? Is it about you or is it about God? What are your motives for serving God? And every one of us in here, is to be serving God. If you know Christ, you are to be serving him in some way. So these areas that we dealt with, we looked at uh, in Malachi, they're the same things that we wrestle with today. I mean, you could have read this and said, this is going on today. Again, God and his word do not change, and they're relevant then as they are, as they, they are were as relevant then as they are now. And uh, we see that we wrestle with these same things. But God and his word never changed. So we can take heart in that. And then in chapter 4, it just deals, it states that God's judgment is coming. And it will, be, it will completely devastate the wicked. But those who fear the Lord will experience the restoration of God's blessing and joy. We're talking about when Christ comes again, the second time. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to completely do away with it set up his kingdom, and those of us who know Christ will experience full restoration, God's blessing and his joy. So to leave, I want to leave you with this, is serve the Lord with all your heart, knowing that it's never in vain. You may think it's little, it's not a big, it's not a big thing, but you know what? There are no little and big things in God's, king, in God's kingdom. I mean, people who are down in the nursery right now, that is a big thing. You may, they, may, they may feel... Uh, this is not a huge thing. I just kind of watch kids once a month or whatever. Well, they allow you to be over here. 
They allow you to serve in other ways. Uh, we have Awana every week. Love those people. That's not easy. Um, we have our kids' choirs. We have all these things going on. We have people who give of themselves. And you may say, is it really that? I just don't feel like I did a whole lot. Maybe it's the stay-at-home mom who, who just has her kids all day. These are big things, and there are no small things in God's kingdom. And so serve the Lord with all your heart, and knowing that whatever it is, it's not in vain. That God sees it, and God, he knows our motives. And so if your motive is pure, God sees it, and he will honor that. And he'll bless your life. And so if you're not serving, you need to serve. You need to serve somewhere, somehow, some way. Uh, we need to be serving. Um, so Malachi... It deals with a lot of these things. This is the last words that God gave for 400 years. And then John the Baptist shows up. And I believe Will here in a couple weeks is going to be talking about that time period. So kind of the 400 years of silence. And so uh, that's going to be here in a couple weeks. I know next week we go backwards. Keith will finish up the Old Testament that way. But these are the last words that God gave. And how, how true they are even today how true they are, is that we battle these same things. The thing is, times have changed, but people haven't. People are still the same. And so serve God with everything you have, with the right motives, no matter what, how big or how small you think it is, and he'll bless that. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the practical stuff that we see in Malachi or the things that we wrestle with um, day in and day out. I mean, even... Uh, the depths of our own motives and trying to even figure out what those are. It's, it's um, we're, to, we're to be givers. We're to honor you in our marriages. We're, we're to do all these things. And uh, we're to reverence and honor you. Help us to remember that when we come before you, we are to come with reverence and honor. So there's so many things that are very practical for us today. Things that we can, um, we need to examine in our lives and see, are we doing these things? And why are we doing these things? So I ask that you would help us to do some self evaluation would you help us to have clarity with uh and be honest with ourselves um lord if there's sin in our life we'd repent of that uh, but god help us to serve you help give us the desire to serve you and understand that none, nothing is too small there's no no things that are too big too small uh, lord you bless those who who serve you so help us to all be servants of god so in the meantime as we're waiting for you to return I ask that you would help us to, that you, when you come, you'd find us serving you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.